Hey there, and welcome to the United Church Podcast. We are a new church here in Seattle committed to an ethic of love. We are striving to be a people united, united with Jesus, each other, ourselves, and the world around us. We hope you enjoyed this week's homily. Our own reality is shaped by the relationships in which we participate. Our own reality is shaped by the relationships in which we participate. It was 16 years ago that Tracy and I, newlyweds, living in Illinois, decided that we were going to move across the country to the Central Valley of California. 16 years ago, I'd been in ministry for only four years at that time, and 16 years ago, we crossed the entire country to settle into the Central Valley of California in a town called Porterville. It's a tiny town uh, by California standards, but it was a, it was a city, so to speak, of 40,000 people. 40,000 people. And surrounded by us were all of these farmlands, and it was farming everything under the sun. We were miles away, just, just a few miles away from the Lindsay Olives, which are like world-famous olives. We, we had orange groves that you would drive through on your way into town. There were cornfields just a few miles north of us, which really made it feel like Illinois, where we had come from. There were strawberry groves, and there were tomato groves, and there were orchards of apples and everything, lemons, anything and everything under the sun. We had settled into this place called the San Joaquin Valley, which is known for its agriculture. One of the largest exports of agriculture throughout the country, of all sorts of different things, were in this valley that we now were calling home. What's really interesting about Porterville and its 40,000 people was that 40% of the city was Hispanic. 40%. The reason why it was such a large population of Hispanic people was because migrant workers were making their way up across the border in Mexico all the way up there to harvest the crops. And during harvest season, the city actually grew quite a bit, as did the surrounding towns. Now, during this harvest season, we had friends that were our next-door neighbors who were teachers. Both of them were school teachers, and they talked about how their classes would swell during this season with migrant workers' children who could barely speak English but were there in the class while their parents were working day in and day out to harvest all of these crops. 40% of the city, 40%. I remember one day that I was in the office and in through the door walked Abel and Pablo Two men that kind of, as they made their way into the office, they they spoke a smattering of English. And my Spanish, like the two years of high school Spanish that I took, was amazing. No, I was terrible. I couldn't speak Spanish. I, I could ask for where the bathroom was and for a cold glass of water and like, what's your name? And that was really it. Like, that was the extent of my Spanish. I remembered a few colors too, right? Like, that was it. And as they made their way into the office, they were asking for help. 
They were asking if we as a church would help them get something to eat, some food for their family. And we had a small, tiny little food pantry in our church. And we would give away just like bags of groceries. And I asked them where they were from, and they, they told me that they had come up from Mexico and that they had been here for a while, but that the, the farmer that they were working for wasn't paying them on time, and that they were struggling really bad to get the money that was needed to feed their family during this time. And I asked them why they had come into the country, why they had come to do this, and they said, because the money here is better than it is there. And at the end of harvest season, they would make their way back into Mexico every year. Even during the holidays, they would go home for the holidays and then attempt to come back across the border to work. What's fascinating about these two men, Abel and Pablo, and the many people like them that was in this town was that I had never met a migrant worker in my life. I had never spent any time with any of them whatsoever. All I had ever heard was on the news, and this is 16 years ago, on the news about how they're taking our jobs and how they're, they're terrible people and how they're, they're awful in what they do to our country and how they're bringing crime with them as they come into our country. This was the story, the narrative from 16 years ago. And today, that story hasn't necessarily changed much. That narrative hasn't changed very much. The words have been replaced with animals or rapists, or murderers, and some are good people. That's the new narrative that really isn't all that new, but has kind of evolved over the course of the past 16 years, and I find myself wondering, what do we do about this? What do Christians have to say about this? What does the church have to say about this? Where does the church find its place in these sorts of issues, in these sorts of questions? And What's really quite fascinating is that months upon months ago, we sat down and decided that this Sunday, of all Sundays, was going to be John chapter 4, a story of Jesus interacting with the Samaritan woman. And what's so fascinating about this story is that it really does intersect beautifully with our current climate, our current culture here in the States, and how we are treating the outsider, how we are treating the other, how we are treating the people that are not like us. Our reality is shaped by the relationships in which we participate. Now in John chapter 4, we have Jesus and his disciples who are making their way throughout Judea. They've been doing some different things, and this is early on in Jesus' ministry, according to John. This is John chapter 4. The only things that Jesus has done up to that point are call his disciples and turn some water into wine and talk with Nicodemus, and now this moment. Like, it's really early on in his ministry, according to John. And John is setting the stage here to say this story is not only early, but it's actually really central to what's taking place. Now, in John chapter 4, Jesus had to go through Samaria. 
The Pharisees had kind of noticed that, you know, Jesus was gaining some popularity, that Jesus was doing more than John the Baptist was at that point. And Jesus decided it was time to move on to a different area. And so he was going to make his way from the south to the north. But in John chapter 4, it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, what's really fascinating about that word had is that he is, is that the connotation surrounding it is that Jesus felt that it was necessary for him to go through Samaria. What's interesting about that is oftentimes people would, the, the Jewish people would make their way around Samaria. They would, Samaria was located in the middle in the middle of Galilee and Judea. It was right there in the middle, and oftentimes the Jewish people didn't want to go through Samaria because they didn't like the Samaritans. They called them animals. They called them dogs. They called them half-breeds. They called them other. They did not like the Samaritan people, and so what they would do is instead of engaging with them in any way, shape, or form, they would go around Samaria, adding maybe an extra day to their trip. You see, they didn't have cars, right? They didn't have a, a lot of things that could make it a trip shorter, faster. And so they would get on their donkey and they would make an extra day of their trip to get around Samaria because they didn't like them. They didn't want to be around them. But Jesus had to go through Samaria. John chapter 4, he had. He felt it was a necessity to go through Samaria. Samaria. And here he is making his way through Samaria where he stops outside of the town of Sychar where a woman at about noon meets him there. What's fascinating is Jesus sends his disciples. Jesus says, I'm going to rest here at this well. I'm going to sit here in this space. And you go into town and you go get us some food. You go get us something. And Jesus sits at the well at about noon. Now, if you know anything about the weather, noon is kind of when the sun is at its peak, it's in the middle of the sky, and all of a sudden the heat is unbelievable, right? Especially in the Middle East. And we don't know what time of year this was, but it's probably pretty hot. It's probably a little tasty warm. And so here is Jesus sitting at this well, just kind of resting and reclining, and a woman makes her way to the well. Now, women would oftentimes do this. They would come to the well and they would get their water for the day, but they would oftentimes come as a group. And they would come early in the morning when it was cooler, when it was not noon. But here's a solitary woman making her way to the well in the middle of the day, an outcast, someone other, someone who doesn't fit the grand narrative of what's taking place. Now, I've oftentimes heard this story, this story of Jesus and the woman at the well as a very uh, pro, Jesus is pro-women, that, that Jesus is talking about women here in this passage, and that what Jesus is doing, he's actually elevating a woman to a different level, that he's actually treating her as an equal. And I don't disagree with that. I think that's actually really true. However, New Testament scholar by the name of Amy Jill Levine a New Testament scholar at Vanderbilt University wrote in a book, The Misunderstood Jew, talking about Jesus in this story, that actually what's taking place here is something far more beautiful than just Jesus' elevation of women. 
that the grand story that is taking place here is something vastly different, way more creative and even subversive than we oftentimes think. And so here's Jesus sitting here with this woman at this well, talking with her. Would you please get me something to drink? And the woman, her response is kind of funny. And I, I don't read this as her being kind or soft-spoken or submissive in any way. But rather, I, when I read her words and when I try and understand the context of the story, what I hear her saying is very sarcastic, very snarky. Like even just like biting in her commentary with what she's saying. Jesus says, will you give me a drink? And she says, you are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? She understands that there's this difference in their level. That Jews understood Samaritans as half-breeds, as dogs, as animals, as something other, something terrible. And here is this Jewish man asking this Samaritan woman to get him a drink. And Really? Like, that's, that's kind of her response. Really? This is what you're asking me for? This is what you're saying? And Jesus responds, I think, with probably about the same level of snark. I think this is a tense conversation. I don't think this is a happy-go-lucky sort of, oh, would you give me a drink? And, right? I don't think this is like sterile Jesus and sterile woman, right? Like, I think that what is going on here, these are not... This is, a, this is a tense conversation rife with racial overtones. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, who it is that asks you for a drink, all of a sudden, I'm a Jewish man. You're a Samaritan woman. If you knew who it was that was asking you for a drink, Right? Like, these are the racial overtones and undertones that are really present here. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. If you would have understood this woman, you would have given me a drink. You would, I wouldn't be the one asking you for a drink. You would be asking me for a drink. There's snark there. There's tension there. Sir, the woman said, you, you got nothing to draw water with. Talking about living water. Who do you think you are? You have a little cup to get the water out of the well that you're sitting at. Who do you think you are offering me a drink of water from this place that's living? Right? Like there's tension building over and over and over. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? which is her saying once again that both the Jews and the Samaritans came from the line of Jacob. She's claiming ownership of the lineage right there. We're actually the children of Jacob, and if you, don't, if you need proof of that, you're sitting at his well. This is Jacob's well, the well that in Genesis chapter 33, he built for us. This is our lineage this is our thing. We are the true line. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. 
he makes a snide comment about the well. Everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them, my water as a Jewish man is better than your water from this well that's old and rickety. Right? Can you hear what's taking place here in this space? The water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I don't have to ever thirst again, so that I never have to keep coming here for water. Show me this amazing water. They're snark. Oh my goodness, this is not a polite conversation that's taking place. And he told her, go, call your husband and come back. Go, call your master and come back. Again, this is not a polite conversation that's taking place. I want to restate that over and over and over because this is not kindness taking place between the two of them. It is tension. And Jesus is trying to cut through the tension and set up an amazing story to come out. Here's the thing. This is what's so beautiful about this well that Jesus is sitting at. This is Jacob's well. And in Genesis chapter 33, verse 20, this is what it says about it. There he, talking about Jacob, so the Samaritan woman, that she's claiming this lineage, he set up an altar and called it El Elohe Israel, the God of Israel. This is not just any sort of altar, but just before he sets up this altar, just before he builds this well, something beautiful took place. When you go back into Genesis chapter 33, this is where Jacob and Esau, two brothers that absolutely hated each other because Jacob stole Esau's birthright. This is the moment where there was reconciliation, where the two of them found forgiveness. In the story leading up to this moment, Jacob actually sends his children to go and bow before Esau. And then after that, he sends his wives, plural, to go and bow before Esau. He sends livestock. He sends everything that he has to go bow before Esau before he himself goes and asks for forgiveness for what he did in stealing that birthright. And Esau, in that moment, forgives him. There's reconciliation between the two of them. There's healing in that moment. And Jacob sets up an altar and calls it the God of Israel. This is a statement of unity, that they have come back together as one, and that God is the God of both of them. That God is the God that reigns supreme over both of them. That there is unity, that there's healing, that there's reconciliation, that there's restoration taking place here where once there was nothing but separation. And here's Jesus at this well, at this moment where there is nothing but racial division between the Samaritans and the Jews. 
Jesus sitting at this place of reconciliation, of healing and of restoration, engaging in a difficult, terse, tense conversation. Go call your husband and have him come back here because maybe I can explain it to him better. She says, she says, she says, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you have is not quite your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Immediately, she's starting to back up like, oh, what have I stepped into? What is going on here in this space? I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. All of a sudden, the woman is starting to talk about borders and boundaries. Our ancestors worshipped here, but you say that we have to worship over there. Which one of you is right? Which one of us is right? Is it here or is it there? There's a clear line of demarcation. What is it that we are supposed to do? Woman, Jesus replied, this is where he cuts through the borders. This is where he cuts through the division, cuts through the separation, and he says, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. This border no longer matters. There is coming a time where we will worship neither here nor there, but together in spirit and in truth, in unity, in reconciliation, in restoration, just like Esau and Jacob did on that day. There will be no division between the two. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he's going to explain everything to us. They're finding these places of unity in their conversation. And she says, I know that this Messiah is coming, and he's going to come from the Jews. He's going to come from that town, in that place that's all Jewish, and that's how it's going to be. I understand that. I understand that. And Jesus says to her, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just a little side note. Oftentimes people say that Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. (laughs) Right there. She says, I know that this Messiah thing, like this Messiah person is coming. I am he. Oftentimes people just don't want to believe that Jesus ever claimed to be the Messiah. John chapter 4 is right there. It can't be any more clear than that. I am he. I am the Messiah. Now, they're sitting here in this space, and the disciples eventually make their way back from town with food, and they see that Jesus is talking with this Samaritan woman. And I imagine that as they're making their way back towards the well, their jaws are on the floor. 
what is going on? I mean, we've only been walking with Jesus now for two chapters, right? In John, like, we've only been with him for two chapters of this story, and here he's doing this thing. I, I know he said we had to go through Samaria, but, like, this is not what we expected. We did not expect that Jesus would be talking with this woman who is clearly an outcast, but, but a Samaritan woman at that, the lowest of the low of the low of the low. We did not expect this to be what is taking place. And yet here is Jesus in that space. Reconciliation. Restoration. Happening right there in front of him. Jesus had to go through Samaria because he had to show us that reconciliation along any ethnic, racial, religious lines was moot. That we are all God's children. That the borders and the divisions that we set up and create for ourselves are nothing to God. That the only border that God sees is the atmosphere. Those are the borders that God sees. The only one that he sees. We are to be a different type of people. We are to be a people of reconciliation and a people of restoration that follow after who this Jesus is. There's been a lot of talk in the news this week, thanks to the Attorney General, about Romans chapter 13, and that we as a people, as, as, as Christians, as God-fearing Christians, and as a nation, should obey the rules and the laws that have been set forth in this country, and that that's what we should be doing. And people have been bantering back and forth about Romans 13 and what it means in those first few verses that, that, oh, no, 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 no. We don't necessarily have to listen to it this way. We have to listen to it that way. We don't interpret it this way. We interpret it that way. I've had friends that have said, no, this is terrible because, like, look at what Isaiah says and look what Amos says and look what Jeremiah says and look what Deuteronomy says and look what Leviticus says and look what, like, they're going all over the place to try and explain what Romans chapter 13 means. What's beautiful about Romans 13 is it does say that we are to, to support, to be uh, submissive to the laws that are in this nation, in every nation, unless they are laws that are no good, laws that do no good. Oftentimes, Christians, I've, I've been in a lot of conversations with some pastors this week, about Romans 13 and about how we should, we should follow the law to the nth degree, that that's, they're there because God set them in place and that's what we should do. And to which I've responded multiple times to no, no real good responses, that when Jesus came, what Jesus did was he was saying that there are two things that we are, we are subservient to. We are subservient to the law and we're subservient to God. Those two things are what we are subservient to, the law and to God. However, the law that we are subservient to is the law of love. The greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. For all of the laws, all of the commandments hang 
on these two things. As you begin to scroll your way through Romans chapter 13, you find yourself in, in verse 8. And, uh, in, in verse eight, And this is what it says. The commandments are summed up in this one command. This is Romans 13. The commandments are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus came to show us that people matter more than laws. Everything that he did was putting people first. A few weeks ago, we talked about the man with the shriveled hand. The man with the withered hand. And Jesus, on the Sabbath, the laws of the day were that you do not heal, you do no good, really, on the Sabbath. And Jesus stepped in and said, no, I'm going to heal this man because the law of love is more important and is more uh, higher, is higher than the law of the land. People come first. People come first. There is a crisis unfolding at our border. And it has not just been unfolding over the past two weeks with children being literally ripped from the arms of their parents. But it has been going on for years and years and years before that. A long time. It was only four years ago that I was with several other pastors in Washington, D.C., talking with our elected representatives. I was there for one day, and it was block to block with meeting after meeting after meeting with representatives in the Congress. We were there to advocate for sensible immigration reform. We were there to literally lobby on part of the religious establishment as a part of the evangelical immigration table. That's what we were there to do. And over and over and over and over, the response to us as we sat down with these congressmen was, it's not going to happen. The Senate had already passed a bill that was flawed, but was something that would have created a lot less problem that we have now. It was at least a good start. It was not a final solution. And Congress was like, yeah, it's not going to happen. And over and over, every representative we asked was, why is it not going to happen? The speaker doesn't want to give the president a victory. That was it. It was politics. Over and over and over, every single person. We don't, we don't really want to deal with this because it's too hot button of an issue. And the church has traditionally stepped away from these sorts of things have stepped back and said, no, it's the law of the land. We just got to do what we got to do, and that's just kind of how it is. And over and over and over and over again, we have said people are less than the law. But it's time for us as the church, as the people of Christ, as the people of Jesus, to actually do the things that Jesus did and to step into those spaces, to step into those places and begin to advocate for people in a way that he did. I know there's some people that say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I... 
I just didn't think I was going to be a part of a political church. This is politics. It's a political thing. Like, I don't really want to be a part of a political church. This is not about politics so much as it is about people. This is not about politics so much as it is about us following hard and fast in the ways of Jesus and doing what it is that Jesus did. If we are the body of Christ, we must be the body of Christ. I want to invite you into two things, to participate in two things, if you so choose. (laughs) This is is different for me, and it's a little uncomfortable because it's different for me. I I am not one to use the pulpit, so to speak, that's invisible, the pulpit for things like this. This is new and quite uncomfortable for me. However, I truly do believe that this is the way of Jesus and that there are things that we can do and must do. And so there's a, there's a petition by the Evangelical Immigration Table. I created a nice little bit.ly uh, to make it easier. bit.ly slash United Families. That way it's easier to remember, right? It's a petition by the Evangelical Immigration Table that says that this, this snatching of the children at the border must end. That this policy that is new and just got enacted needs to stop. And we need to figure out something else. It's kind of a quick sort of thing, and this, this, this petition will get delivered at some point uh, within the next week or so. And so I want to invite you to participate in that, in, in that petition. And for me, that's a little strange as well, because I'm not a huge believer in petitions. I think they're kind of like, I just don't know if they do anything, right? Like, I feel like it's, in some respects, it's just lip service, And when I thought about it, when I thought about like why a petition kind of thing, the only thing that came into my mind was, I want an actual physical historical record that I took a stand. I want like in in the annals of history, when this comes around, I want there to be something that says that I was on the right side of history, that I stood up for Jesus' children when it mattered, even though it's just a petition. I want there to be something. Something there, a record there. The second thing is, today, it started about 50 minutes ago, there's a rally down at Westlake. And it's an opportunity, it's it's together for families. It's uh, keeping families together. There's a rally there, and and, and shortly after service at about 1.30, I'm going to make my way down there and join in with the march. And I want to invite you to join me in that space to, to march alongside a solidarity to, to show the people that we are wronging as a nation and as a country that we don't believe that it is right, that we don't believe that it's correct, that we don't believe that it's good, that it's actually anti-loving. It's anti-the law, anti-the way of Jesus. So I want to invite you to join me in that place, at that space. We'll find the march. I'm sure it'll be there. (laughs) It'll be easy to find, I'm sure. Last thing I want to tell you is that the people that are crossing the border, I hope that this makes you a little angry. I hope that it does. There are two types of people that are crossing the border. There are those that are seeking asylum. They're running from violence in their own country. 
They're trying to get away from the things that are happening there. They're literally running for their lives, which is not illegal. When they approach the border with their family seeking asylum, that is not an illegal act. There is nothing illegal about it. So when you're in conversation with people and they say, everybody that's crossing the border is illegal, that is actually false. And the majority of the people that are actually coming to the border are seeking asylum because they are coming from these places and they're looking for a safe place of refuge. They are literally refugees. Not only that, but the vast majority of them are actually Christians. These are our brothers and sisters that we are ripping their families apart in the name of Romans 13. The second group of people that are crossing the border are actually doing it illegally. It is illegal for them to do what they are doing. However, the, the law that they are breaking is not a felony. It is a misdemeanor. It is at the fine level, F-I-N-E, they, they are supposed to pay a fine. It is at the fine level of a traffic ticket. We are tearing apart families for something that is equal to a traffic ticket. That would be like me getting pulled over for going 45 in a 35, and the police officer coming up and taking Elliot out of my car, putting her in the car, and then driving away with her, and another police officer taking me to a completely different detention center for going 10 miles over the speed limit. This is the level of violation that is being occurred when they cross the border. It is not a felony. It is not at the level of a murder or an arson. It is not at those levels. It is literally the level of a parking ticket. I did not make that up. That comes directly from Matthew Sorens, who is a part of World Relief, who deals with immigration issues, and who is, whom I've gotten to know a little bit through this evangelical immigration table conversation. It's a traffic ticket. If that should not anger you, if that does not anger you, think about it again. A traffic ticket is what is separating these families. Let us not be a people that sit back while these families are destroyed and torn apart because our culture has deemed them to be dogs, animals, half-breeds. But let us step into this space just like Jesus did and bridge that gap and try with everything that we have and everything that we can to pull this back together because this is what Jesus has called us to. This is what Jesus has called us to be. And this is who we are as the body of Christ. Father, this morning, we come to you with heavy hearts and just not quite sure exactly what to do. The issues and the challenges that are in front of us they seem too big. They seem bigger than us as a congregation. They seem bigger than us as an individual. And so, Father, we come before you this morning and we pray. We pray that whatever actions 
we find in front of us that we would engage that at the very least we would be praying for our brothers and sisters at the border, for their children, for their families. The Father, that this policy, this thing, this insidiousness that is in front of us would stop. Father, we know that you are a God of power. We know that Jesus came to destroy the systems of injustice that are in front of us and to replace them with a system of love, a system of kindness, a system of goodness. And so, Father, we ask that you would insert yourself here in a powerful way to stop this. As the Catholic bishops around the country come together, as denominations come together, as even Franklin Graham comes together underneath this, as the church finds some semblance of unity in this issue, Father, we pray that we would be a loud voice on your behalf and for the children in this country. Father, we pray. We pray for your power. We pray for creativity. Help us to think of new ways in which we can do something. Father, we pray that you would break our hearts with the things that break your heart. Father, it's in your son's name that we pray all of these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's homily. If you're in Seattle, we'd love for you to join us on Sundays at noon at 1316 3rd Avenue West in Queen Anne. If you'd like to support our efforts, please visit unitedchurch.gives to partner with us financially. Be in peace and God bless.